will be our, uh, our last sermon in Matthew for a little while, uh, for a few weeks anyway, until the, until the new year. And we're going to be starting in verse 18 of chapter 9. So if you were here last week, you know that uh, in the previous passage, Jesus was asked about fasting. Pastor Brent unpacked this for us last week. Uh, and he told his hearers that there was no reason to fast uh, while he was here uh, because fasting is for mourning and uh, we should have joy uh, and not mourning in the presence of Jesus. Prior to that passage, Jesus had made a pretty bold public claim. He had made a claim uh, that he was God in, in um, the forgiveness of sins uh, of a paralytic man. And uh, only God, we know, can forgive sins. And so Jesus, in this act of forgiving sins, was saying, without saying, uh, that he was God. And so it, uh, of course, threw the religious leaders uh, in a tizzy uh, over that uh, because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Today, we'll see, uh, even to the point of healing a blind person, that the religious leaders of Jesus' day attributed this healing as a work of the devil. So like these religious leaders, like they really just didn't get it. They really didn't get it. But we're going to see today that there are some people that did understand and did get, that did recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so we're going to look at three different healings. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, a lot of, a lot of verses here, and I'm going to try to do it uh, without dragging on longer than it needs to be. Um, but settle in, because <laughs> we've got a lot we got to cover. So Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 18, it says, while he was saying these things, in other words, while he was talking to uh, the religious leaders of his day about fasting, while he was saying these things, to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, the woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And we'll pause there for a moment. So there's a lot going on here, even just in this, these few verses that we just read. So just on the heels of Jesus talking to people about uh, joy, having joy and not mourning, it says that a religious leader came to him. So, so here's a religious leader that maybe isn't like the rest of the religious leaders. This man came to Jesus with a request saying that his daughter had just died and asked Jesus if he would just lay his hand on her, if he would just touch her, that she would be made well. Now, Mark and Luke both give us a little more detail uh, in this account. They give us the name of the man. His name is Jarius. They tell us that the daughter was about 12 years old. Uh, and Mark and Luke, both in their accounts, say that he fell at Jesus' feet. Matthew tells us that he knelt. Mark and Luke say that he fell at Jesus' feet and that they impl and he implored him to make this daughter well. So, so we see in Mark and Luke's account some desperation on the part of this religious leader. Now, what we don't 
necessarily know is, did he recognize Jesus as the Messiah or was this just kind of a move of desperation to say, I don't have anything else, so I'm going to give this a try. We don't know. We don't know. But the man came to Jesus. He fell at his feet, implored him to make his daughter well. Again, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they get kind of this bad rap. And rightfully so, like they've earned the bad rap that they have. But for whatever reason, this guy Jairus doesn't seem to be quite like the others. Given the circle that he was a part of, it was kind of a scandalous thing for him to come to Jesus and to do what he did. It was a scandalous thing and that shouldn't be lost on us. However, remarkably, Jesus didn't seem to question, why are you here? Did you notice that what happened is when he, when he knelt or when he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him, did you notice what the scripture says? Jesus got up and went with him. We're not told that Jesus questioned him. We're not told that Jesus said, well, where are we going? How far away is it? All these practical questions that I probably would have asked. Right? Jesus just got up and went with him. And this tells us something about who Jesus is, that he got up without question. Now, granted, he's the son of God and he knows everything and he probably didn't have to ask those questions. But, but still, Jesus' response was to get up and to go with this man. And then as they were going, this interruption happens. There was a woman, verse 20 tells us, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now we're told that Jairus' daughter was about 12 years old and we're told that this woman had an issue of suffering for 12 years. I, I don't know what that means, but there's two things in this passage that are 12 years old. There, there's probably a reason for it, but um, people above my pay grade haven't figured out what that correlation is. But it probably means that these two stories go together in some way, right? They're connected in some way. And this woman, so, so this discharge that she had, uh, theologians tell us that, that it was a menstrual discharge, that, that she couldn't stop for 12 years. Mark's account and Luke's account tell us that she spent all of her money going to doctors who could ultimately not help her. All of her money, so she was poor. So if that wasn't bad enough that she had spent all of her money going to doctors who ultimately couldn't help her, the Levitical law tells us that this discharge of blood would have made this woman unclean which would have made her um, ceremonially, uh, she was an outcast uh, in society. She wasn't able to go to the temple and participate. Uh, like she couldn't come to church, right? Because of this uncleanliness, uh, because of this health issue that she had. So she was an outcast in every way. So not only did she spend all of her money, not get any help for 12 years, but she was an outcast of society. And the reality is, is that she shouldn't have been where she was. She shouldn't have been able to get near Jesus because she was a societal outcast. But we see, just like we see with Jairus, if you, if you just touch my daughter, she'll be made well. We see this woman that says, if only I can touch him. If only, and not even him, but his garment. If I, could, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be made well. We see remarkable faith uh, on the part of two different people. And so she somehow made her way to Jesus. Mark and Luke tell us that this, the crowd was, uh, like it was a rough crowd, uh, tight quarters, people bumping into each other. Um, you know, I don't know, like we went a couple of weeks back to the Grand Illumination in Sun River and I hated it because there, there's 20,000 people out there and like nobody's following the rules of the road. You're bumping into people everywhere you go. Uh, the line to get coffee was 63 people deep. Yes, I counted because I didn't want to wait that long. Just, this is the kind of crowd that it was. 
right? You can't even turn around without bumping into somebody. And somehow this woman had made it to Jesus and she touched his garment. Don't, don't let the scandal of this be lost on us. Like I said, she was an outcast in every way and had no right to be where she was, no right to do what she did. Anybody that she would have touched would have been considered unclean simply by virtue of being touched by this woman who was considered unclean. So she touches Jesus' garment. Luke tells us that Jesus sensed that power went out of him. I don't know what that's about either. Jesus sensed that power went out from him and this woman was made well. Matthew in verse 22 says that Jesus turned, turned to her and said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Remarkable account. According to the rules of the day, Jesus would have been made unclean simply by having contact with this woman. And so Jesus would have had every right to turn to this woman and scold her. What are you doing? Why are you here? Why have you touched me? You, now you've made me unclean. And per the Levitical law, like, there was a lot of hoops you got to jump through to go from unclean to clean. It was a big deal. This outcast of society, a reject of society. Now remember, just, just a little bit before this happened, Jesus was caught dining with sinners and tax collectors. That, that's pretty bad. What's worse is that now this unclean woman has touched him, thereby making him unclean. And Jesus' response was to turn to her. And do you notice what he called her? He called her daughter, a term of endearment. He didn't scold this woman for being in the wrong place, maybe at the right time, but she was certainly in the wrong place. He didn't reject her like anybody and everybody else would have. He called her daughter. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And that's exactly what happened. We're told that she was instantly healed. Jesus did what no doctor could do. And, and so Jesus demonstrating that he's got authority, as he already has time and time again, that he's got authority over everything. He's got authority over disasters. He's got authority over disease. We'll see in a moment that he even has authority over death. So here again, Jesus really showing us that he's God without telling us that he's God because he has authority over this. Now, we're not told how the crowd reacted to this, but you can imagine how the crowd might have reacted to this. And something I was just pondering this week um, just the unlovely of society, right? We, we all tend to think pretty highly of ourselves, right? I've told you before, I'm the best person I know, and you're probably the best person that you know. It's just the way that we think about ourselves. Jesus here turns to an absolute reject of society and calls her his daughter. Don't let that be lost on us either, this little detail that might be easy to gloss over. Jesus going so far as to interact with the worst of the worst of society. And he doesn't do so with any hesitancy, with any trepidation, with any worry, with any concern. We know Jesus just doesn't concern himself with how it looks, who he's hanging out with. He's just not worried about that. And not only does he refer 
to this woman as daughter, but he heals her. He heals her in an instant, not over time, but in an instant. And he tells her that her faith has made her well. Now, a prosperity gospel believing people would look at this a verse like this and say, like, Jesus always wants to heal us and it should be instant and in the moment. And, and we, we know that we just don't get healed all the time instantly. It just doesn't happen, right? One day, there will be no more disease. One day, there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more hurt. And so we know that ultimately healing is coming one day. Whether it comes in the here and the now, maybe, maybe not. But Jesus, in this moment, healed this woman instantly. And the phrase is that your faith has made you well. But we have to look at the Greek a little bit to have a better understanding of this. So the same word as made in the Greek could also could be translated as heal or save. It could be translated either way. So Jesus could be saying your faith has made you well or your faith has saved you. And the fact that he refers to this woman as daughter gives us an indication that, that maybe in that moment that Jesus saved her. I don't know what her faith was before. I mean, she had enough faith to do what she did, to do this audacious thing. But, but we know that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Right? So the idea here is not that, that the faith was the meritorious thing. Jesus didn't look at this woman and say, okay, you have enough faith, I'm going to do this thing for you because you have enough faith. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. The meritorious thing in this part of the story is God's sovereign will of healing this woman. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Right? originate within us. Faith is given to us as a gift by God. And it's important that we understand that. And so somehow God gave this woman faith. And God acted on the faith that he gave this woman in order to affect this instant healing that no doctor could seem to fix over a dozen years. And so again, it's important that we understand that Jesus isn't looking at this woman saying, because you have enough faith, I've done this thing for you. But Jesus is being Jesus, doing his sovereign thing and healing. And that's where the merit lies in this part of the story. So the woman was instantly healed and, and Jesus goes about his way. It says in verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. In other words, this girl had died. Now, Mark and Luke's account tell us that when Jairus came to Jesus, that they said, my daughter is about to die. Matthew's account says when he first came, he said that she had died. So whether, whether she was dead in the moment when the ruler came to Jesus or it happened sometime between then and the time they arrived on scene, we, we don't know, but that's not the important fact of the story. The important part of the story is that by the time Jesus got there, this girl was dead, and it's evidenced by the flute players and the commotion. They had already begun the ceremony, the funeral had already started for this girl. So no question that she was dead. And Jesus told the crowd, go away, in verse 24, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And we see how the crowd reacted at him. 
They laughed. They laughed at him. The crowd doesn't understand who it is that's saying this to them. And so they laughed at Jesus. And, and really, if you think about it, this w- would be a laughable thing if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But when the crowd had been put outside in verse 25, where so that Jesus went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. Remarkable. Puts the crowd outside, grabs the girl by the hand, and she gets up. Mark's account and Luke's account tell us that the family was instructed, don't tell anybody about this. Now, imagine the difficulty of not telling anybody about this. The funeral had already begun. People know what had happened. People know when this girl walks outside and they see her upright and they see her with breath in her lungs and her heart beating, they know what happened. I don't know why Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this, but obviously word would spread of something like this. It says that the report in verse 26 went all throughout the district. In other words, everybody knew what happened. Everybody knew what happened. Here again, touching a dead person would make somebody unclean. And we're told that Jesus grabbed her by the hand. So here again, Jesus making himself unclean so that somebody could be made clean. There's a picture of the gospel in what's happening here. Jesus even being willing to touch two very unlikely people. A woman with a health issue and and a dead girl. And Jesus making no qualms about it. He touched the unclean so that the unclean could become clean. Sounds a lot like something that Jesus would do, doesn't it? So that's one account. Verse 27, we see another pair of unlikely people, two blind men. And Jesus passed on from there, or as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When they entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. I don't know what's going on in this district, but a lot of things are happening in this district. A lot of stories getting out there about Jesus. So Jesus, kind of backing up a little bit, right? Jesus calls Matt, like we have this whole series of things, like Jesus goes from here to here and this thing happened, and then he goes from here to here and this other thing happened, and then he goes from here to here and this thing happened. And as they were going over there, then this thing happened, like boom, 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 boom. All these things happening back to back to back. So Jesus was getting some attention. People were taking note of him. And we see this contrast throughout all these accounts and even from weeks previous, the religious leaders scoff him, mock him, they laugh at him. But some people in the crowds come to him recognizing that he's the Messiah. So we have these two blind men. I don't know how they know that he passed because they were blind, so maybe they had some help. But they followed him. And they cried aloud as they were following, Have mercy on us, son of David. This phrase, son of David, is is messianic in its nature. 
So there was something about these blind men that recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior. He was the long-awaited hope of Israel. I don't know how they knew this, but somehow they knew it. And they cried out to the Messiah, asking that the Messiah would have mercy on them. This, again, an audacious thing happening here on the part of these blind men. So we see, really, so far, we, we see faith in action, although the faith of the people is not necessarily, I don't think, the point of this passage, but it is notable. But we see faith in action reaching out to the Messiah, asking for mercy, asking for healing, asking for a touch. And it says, when they entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, I always find it funny when, when Jesus asks questions in the Bible. It's not because he doesn't know the answer, right? He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-hearing, sovereign over everything, orders the universe. When Jesus asks a question, it's, it's not for his benefit. It's not because he's seeking the answer. He's asking this question for the benefit of the blind men who were requesting mercy. And he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Now, if this were me, I might say, maybe try not to be presumptuous, but I might say, I, I hope so. You know, <laughs> I might say something like that, that, that has a little bit of skepticism to it. But these men answered affirmatively, yes, Lord. Yes, we believe that you can do this. We're asking you to do this because we believe that you can. And then Jesus touched their eyes. Here's another touch. He touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And again, the faith is not the meritorious thing in this story. It's the sovereign will of God that, that earns the merit here, that God has chosen to heal them. Again, Jesus giving the indication without saying it overtly that he's God. Who can do this? Who can do this? No one can do this except for God himself. And it says that their eyes were opened. And then Jesus, in this instance, sternly warned them not to tell anybody. Again, I, I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know why Jesus would not want this out here. But both accounts that we've read so far, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. And, the, and these are big deals like raising a little girl from the dead and healing two blind men. Like these guys, now that they can see, like they're going to be a part of society in a way that they weren't part of society before. And people are going to pick up on the fact that, hey, wait a minute. Isn't it, isn't those the, aren't those the blind men? They can see what, like what how, questions are going to arise. For some reason, Jesus tells them not to tell. But these men, in verse 31, says that they went away and they spread his fame. They didn't just tell, but they spread his fame throughout all of the district. Now, while this I don't think is the main point of the text, I don't want this to be lost on us either, that I think we have a job as Christians to spread the fame of Jesus all over, right? Don, you shared what God did in your life and you're, you're spreading the fame of Jesus and it's, it's like it's one of the reasons that you're an awesome guy because you spread the fame of Jesus, right? Because it's all that matters, right? Don't let it be lost on you. Our, our job as Christians is to spread the fame of Jesus because of what he's done for us. Every single one of us has not necessarily experienced a miraculous 
healing like this, but God has touched us all in some way, I suspect. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing, right? There would be no reason for us to come week after week and hear the preaching of the word and sing the songs that we sing in fellowship with one another, if not for the simple fact that God has touched us in some way. Whether we deem it to be a big way or a small way, that God has touched us. And if that's true, then we ought to be about spreading his fame anywhere and everywhere. That's why the door exists. So we would spread his fame, just like these blind men. Finally, verse 32, as they were going, here again, boom, 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 boom. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So as they were going, some, some, somehow this demon-oppressed man gets brought to Jesus, and we're told that he's mute, and, and it could be that he was also deaf. We, we don't know that, but, but this word for mute could also include deafness as well. So it's likely that this was someone who couldn't speak and also who could not hear. And so this man was brought to him. You can imagine in today's society how difficult it would be for a deaf mute to get by from day to day. Well, rewind the clock a couple of thousand years when we, didn't, we don't have the technology that we have today. We don't have the social services back then that we have today. You can imagine how difficult it would be. So again, here's another reject of society. Another reject of society that probably no one paid the time of day to. Somehow, this reject was brought to Jesus. And we're not told explicitly that, that Jesus cast out the demon. It just says that when the demon had been cast out, so we're presuming that, that Jesus did his thing, right? And, and cast out this demon, that the mute man spoke. Again, remarkable. Who can do this? Only God can do this. The mute man spoke and the crowds marveled. They said, never have we seen anything like this in all of Israel. And they, they certainly haven't up to this point. They haven't seen anything like this. So we have the crowds marveling, but we have the contrast of the Pharisees saying he casts out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, saying, well, that was the devil's work that did that. That was the devil that did that. Stark contrast between the crowds and the Pharisees. The crowds are starting little by little to understand who Jesus is. It seems like the religious leaders are, are kind of doubling down and digging their heels in, refusing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So much so that they've gone to the point to say what he just did was of the devil. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. So we put all, all three of these accounts together. We've got two pairs of unlikely people, of a religious leader and an outcast. We have a pair of blind men, probably to some extent outcasts from society as well because of their blindness. We have two unclean people, a dead 12-year-old girl and a woman with 12 years of bleeding. 
we see two people falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus and the woman, imploring him. We see two blind men imploring the Son to have mercy on them. And in all of these accounts, we see that, that Jesus touches. Jesus touched the dead girl. The woman reached out and just touched the hem of his garment. He put his hands on the eyes of the blind men. All of them healed by the Messiah. Did, did Jesus have to touch them? No. Jesus could have just spoken a word. He, he could have snapped his fingers. He, he didn't even have to do any of that. He could have just thought it and it would have happened because he has that kind of power and that kind of authority. But, but Jesus, I think, again, we see just in the simple act of touching that, that there's compassion that Jesus has on these rejects of society. Jesus has compassion, I think, we see in this for the least of these. Even so much so to the point where he's willing to make himself ceremonially unclean per the law so that he could show his compassion to people that really nobody else was showing any kind of compassion to. This is remarkable when you think about all of this. And we're told, we're told in, in Isaiah 35 that things like this would happen, right? For, for the Jews of Jesus' day who knew their scripture, they, they would have recalled, no doubt, to Isaiah 35 where it talks about the blind receiving sight where it gives us a picture or a shadow of the coming of the Messiah. And then at the very end of all of this, you have the religious leaders basically calling this work evil, demonic, of the devil. And I think for us, we... Like there's a way that we read the Bible sometimes where we relate to the cool people, right? We read the story of David and we think, oh, I'm, I'm David, right? We... Like we read these stories and we kind of impose ourselves on, on the heroes of the story. But I think a more accurate reading of the Bible would to, to read it and to impose ourselves upon the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the not-so-cool people, the unclean people, the rejects of society because this is what our sin does to us, right? Our sin blinds us. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And so we see Jesus healing physical blindness here, but what we all really need is to be healed of our spiritual blindness. That's innate to us, like we're born with spiritual blindness. And until such time as, as God intervenes, we can't see. That's where, well, that's where faith is a gift, as I talked about earlier. That's part of God's intervention is opening up our eyes, implanting in us a faith that didn't exist previous to him planting it in us, allowing us to see. And the religious people of Jesus' day were the ones that had the most difficult time seeing who Jesus was. Jairus, he's an oddball in the religious leader circle. But for the most part, it was, it was the most religious people that had the most difficult time with who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And we, we exist here at this church like these blind men to spread Jesus' fame anywhere and everywhere that we can. And what that means for us is that we ought to be more than willing to get our hands dirty for the least of these, to roll up our sleeves 
and to compassionately touch and love those whose society wants nothing to do with. I think that's, you know, like there's a lot of things going on in these three healing accounts. We certainly see people coming to Jesus with faith. We see Jesus' compassion. We see Jesus' authority. We see all of these things in this whole section of Scripture starting in chapter 8. But we also see Jesus showing compassion to people that society wouldn't show compassion to. And that's a kind of a small detail that's a big detail that, again, I don't want to be lost on us today. Jesus loves those that society rejects. Jesus did something for those who could never do anything for him. Not expecting anything in return. Matter of fact, he told them, like, don't, don't go tell people about this. And in both cases, they went and told people about it because they were compelled to go tell people, here's what God has done for me. And so as we consider today the faith that God has given us, again, understand that it's a gift. It's not something that's inside of you that you have to dig down deep and find. God, God is the author of our faith. And not only is he the author of our faith, that if he is the author of our faith, then he also is the perfecter or the finisher, depending on your translation, of our faith. He who began a good work in us will see it through to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. And so, so we have that. God working in us to will and to do for his good purpose and his good pleasure, according to Philippians. And so don't let that be lost on you today and, and glory in who God is, glory in what God has done, glory in what God is doing here. David and I were talking not long ago about just all the little things that are happening here in our church. And we came to the conclusion that the little things really are the big things. The little things really are the big things. And we, we were just in conversation, just making a list of just seeing how, how God is working in all of you. Like we, we were naming names and excited, like here's what God's doing to this person. Here's what God's doing to that person. Here's what I see over here. And here's what's going on there. And like, I don't know, we talked for an hour. I don't know how long it was, long time of just naming the things that God is doing in people. No blind people have received their sight. No, nobody's raised from the dead. But there's all these little things that really add up at the end of the day to the big things that God is doing in our life. And we're super encouraged by it. And so I, just, I share that so that you can be encouraged as well to pay attention to what God is doing. And it's not us that gets the merit for it. God, God is not doing good things in our church and in our lives because we're awesome people. I hope that we're awesome people, but that's not why God acts. God acts because he has a sovereign will. And simply he decides, I'm gonna do some good things down here in Lapine. And we get to be a part of it. And those good things sometimes happen in, in unexpected ways. Those good things happen sometimes with unexpected people at unexpected times. Remember when we were kids and we, we were picking the kickball team? Nobody wanted to be the last one picked, right? You don't want to be the last person standing. It's like, ah, all right, I guess I'll take, you know, that guy. Sometimes you would even strategize, like we would rock, paper, scissors, who was going to pick first. And, and sometimes you'd lose intentionally to rock, paper, scissors because you'd think in your head, okay, I'm going to do this and he's going to do that. And I'm going to, like you'd plan it out, right? So you could pick the most likely 
people for your team. But one of the things we see in our text today is that, that Jesus doesn't pick the likeliest of people. The religious leaders probably would have been the likeliest of people for Jesus' day. But who does Jesus spend time with? Sinners, tax collectors, the rejects of society. That's who he spends time with. And not only does he spend time with them, but he does for them. He heals them. He compassionately cares and loves them. And the reason I don't want that to be lost on us today is because those things should characterize our church. And I think those things do characterize our church. But my hope and my prayer is that as time goes on, that these things would characterize our church more and more and more and more. As, as we welcome people through our doors that maybe society doesn't have a lot of good things to say about. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians that, that God uses the dumb things of the world to confound the wise. He reminds us that, that not many of us, when we were called, had, had you know, this super noble place in life. But, but God called many of us at our worst, right? Pulled us out of the pit. And so let us remember that as we, as we see Jesus making himself unclean so that the unclean could become clean. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that, uh, that you are willing that you're a willing and able God, that you're good to us, that you care for us. We're thankful that you have mercy on us, that you show us grace. We're thankful that you love us. We're thankful that you have saved us. God, we're thankful that you have uh, conquered uh, our problems of spiritual blindness and, and even spiritual death, that you've conquered those things in calling us to belong to you. And so I would pray today that that wouldn't be lost on us and that we would be people that endeavor to spread your fame anywhere and everywhere that we go and all that we do, not only here in this building and inside these four walls, but outside these four walls when we go from here and when we engage in life Monday through Saturday, whatever it is that we do, that we would be people uh, that would tell others what you've done for us all in an effort to introduce people to you. And so God, we pray that you would um, act on that. Pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would grow our faith, that you would cause us to act in faith, that we would worship in faith, that we would love others in faith, that we would reach out to even the rejects of society and do so as an act of worship and in faith to you. God, we need you to do this for us because we can't do it on our own. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Today we get to, get to celebrate these gospel truths as we share communion together. We do this here once a month. And communion reminds us of what we know to be true. It reminds us of, of Jesus' body broken. It reminds us of his blood shed. It reminds us that he was our substitute, that he stood in our place taking on the wrath of God, taking on the sinfulness of mankind and satisfying God's wrath with his shed blood and with his broken body. And so what a glorious thing that we do get to celebrate. Again, Jesus becoming unclean so that the unclean can become clean. And that's all of our story here today. And so Don's going to come up and play and you can come up and, and grab the communion elements uh, and take them on your own at your seat uh, and celebrate the truth of the gospel today in doing so.